This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash MBO. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. In particular, tonight's episode includes a brief mention of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host, Eric Peabody, and tonight's episode is a double feature of scary stories, both from authors that are new to Horror Hill. We'll begin with You Have to Choose by Daniel Dickinson. Our story opens with our narrator having a surreal and disturbing dream, a dream of a malevolent figure in an empty landscape. 
This has been a recurring nightmare for our protagonist, and as a clinical psychologist, these sorts of things are of particular interest to him. What's also interesting is that past patients of his have described very similar dreams. As the nightmares continue, he starts digging into what might be causing them, and as frequent listeners of this show will know, that rarely ends well. We will then close out our episode with Under a Blanket of Stars by George Woodruff. Brennan is a man that's trying to do the right thing for his family. He's currently out in the wilderness of the Rocky Mountains on a retreat along with several other men, all of which are members of the Dissolving Anger Daily Anger Management Group. Fighting personal demons can be a difficult enough challenge for many people, but sometimes so much focusing inward means that you can be a bit blind to external terrors. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? And now, from author Daniel Dickinson, I give you... You have to choose. It begins the same way every night. The sky overhead is clear and cloudless. A sea of the most perfect blue pervades the horizon, save the imposing presence of a singular, blinding sun. I dare not look up. Below, the ground is an infinitude of newly settled concrete, stretching on all sides to meet the horizon at the precise endpoint of my level gaze. The air is without an odor of any kind, more sterile than pure. As a matter of fact, that's the word I would use to describe the entire scene. Sterile. At least, it would be, if it weren't for the figure in the distance. It starts out as a speck, interrupting the contiguous lines stretching from east to west, both of which are indiscernible, almost indistinguishable from the horizon line itself. But every time I look away, it moves on me. If I close my eyes, it moves faster. The longer I close my eyes, the closer it gets. But when my eyes are open, it stops in its tracks, waiting for my next move. Finally, after a series of randomized blinks and takes of various intervals, it's close enough for me to make out a face. It is a middle-aged man of average height and weight, with pale skin and slick black hair. He's wearing a gray suit, white-collared shirt and black tie, a white pocket square sticking out of the suit's left front pocket. His face is unblemished, but one of his eyes is off-white and glossy, the pupil faded and empty. The other is a vibrant hazel. That is the moment I can see his face, 
but it's also the moment he seems to develop the ability to move of his own accord. The entire period that has passed, I have not been able to move. I watch him coming towards me in a ceaseless lurch, struggling to break out of my peculiar paralysis with all of my strength. He is a matter of feet from me now. I manage to bring my right arm up to defend myself, but it's too late. At the apex of my swing, his left hand shoots forward, grabbing my wrist. I bring up the other arm, which he grabs before it can pass my neck. Finally, he brings his face so close to mine that I can smell his putrid, foul breath, powerless to do anything as he slowly widens his fury-filled eyes and produces a fiendish grin, the grin of a goblin, the corners of his mouth stretching from ear to ear, revealing a protruding set of long, black, rotting teeth, the grin finally becoming a maw, an abyss, a pit of the deepest vantablack that will soon become my tomb, where I will spend the rest of my days, where I will forever yearn for the sterile, odorless environs of a ubiquitous sky and an infinite stretch of solid ground. I wake up shortly afterwards, however, never before I hear the following words in the pitch black. You have to choose. I'm a clinical psychologist. I make my living treating people with serious and diverse assortments of neuroses, ranging anywhere and everywhere from nail-biting to claustrophobia to full-blown, my uncle's a deer and I think he's sleeping with my wife, kinds of psychopathology. Most cases are the kind of thing someone like me merely pretends to care about so they can earn their paycheck, giving the patient an encouraging don't-mess-with-the-band-aid word of caution and go about their day. Some cases are more interesting. These are the people that really give me a litany of childhood trauma, personal sins, marital secrets, the sort of material that detached intellectuals like me salivate over. Both of these categories keep me going, I suppose. It is my job and my livelihood. Honestly, it's damn near my entire way of life. But once in a blue moon, a case comes along that really makes my skin crawl. These are the cases in which a patient exhibits no strange behavior, presents irrefutable evidence of a perfectly ordinary life, a happy marriage, healthy kids, a steady job, and the only thing that's out of the ordinary, a recurring nightmare they've had for a period of no apparent consequence. Once in November of 2014, a woman told me she had been waking up to the shock of being stabbed in the belly from behind for the last three months. The only thing she could make out was always the image of a white gloved hand sticking out from a gray suit sleeve, the space in between revealing a sliver of pale skin. February, three years prior, a man in his mid-seventies told me that, for the past year, his dreams had all ended with a pillow suffocation, always at the hands of some, in his words, office clerk with a glass eye. 
The first time I heard one of these cases, I could never figure it out. I ended up transferring the poor girl's file down the line, hoping somebody else could help her. No one could. She drowned herself two weeks later, a note attached to her bathroom mirror carefully spelling out four simple words. You have to choose. I know what you're thinking. Believe me, I've long considered it myself. Why do the parallels of these cases fail to bring about a scurry of national attention, or even the slightest hint of interested press? Well, I wish I could tell you that there was some secret conspiracy at work here, some malevolent cabal of psychological experimental scientists conducting shady transactions with desperate patients and lying to their families. That would at least fall short of implicating the entire American healthcare system, and by extension myself, but the truth is much more disappointing. The fact of the matter is that these cases just get shoved down the line, transferred and dismissed so often to so many different people, that oftentimes their files just get forgotten. There are other patients with more immediate, or should I say more palatable, concerns, and no one in my field wants to get caught without an answer. It's a profession full of egotists. That wasn't your question, you say? Well then, I suppose I know what it is. Why didn't you seek clinical help yourself? Like I said, full. When my dreams started, it was in the midst of a very fruitful period. I didn't prance around calling myself the next Freud or anything like that but I sure had my moments. I was learning with every case all the different shades and shapes a neurotic could inhabit and still give me the central information I needed in order to form a coherent diagnosis. I was content. I was happy. I had forgotten everything of the girl in the bathtub and the note taped to the mirror. And then the first night brought it all back. Every detail she articulated lined up with my memory of the one-eyed man. The only difference was the colorful personal touch of the gaping mouth with the black teeth. Why me? Why now? What next? For the next few weeks, I waited for the dreams to fade or for some kind of answer to come my way. Nothing faded and nothing came. I searched through miles of all the literature I could find. Freud, Jung, Breuer, Adler, Fromm, Hornet, Sullivan, the whole gang. When that excursion produced no fruit, I turned to Muhammad. And when that turned up nothing, I tried the Vedas, the Bhagavad Gita, the Ramayana, the Mahabharata. Empty-handed... I reluctantly reached way back in my closet shelf and pulled out my dusty old King James. That was a slog, but I stayed up for it, knowing the alternative was worse. Finally, I read the lines, And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city 
and from the things which are written in this book. A thought to keep in mind for the future, perhaps, but for now, a big fat nothing. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Time came for me once again to get as much rest as I could before waking up in a cold sweat. The same damn dream every night, and every time it came, it was like the first time. It was the first time until I woke up and remembered all the other nights that had happened beforehand. And that's when I remembered a course at the university ten years ago. It was a course on dreams. Nightmares, daydreams, the symbols and archetypes found in dreams, the way they're structured, the way they influence memory, so on and so forth. The section of the course that brought it all back for me was the section on areas yet to have been significantly charted, the central among them being premonitions and lucid dreaming. I remember our class looking through cases involving subjects claiming to have experienced something first in a dream and then again, in real life. These cases usually fell under the heading of monotony determining the unconscious, and so the class, including myself, dismissed them outright as anything more than a backwards interpretation of the dream itself. Some cases were harder to dismiss, however, and even harder now. We also looked at all the different ways a person could induce a lucid dream state, for the lay people among you, this is a state in which you're aware that you're asleep during the dream. Theoretically, one could take control of the dream and do whatever they wanted while they were under. They could fly through the air, they could shape mountains and draw rivers, whatever they could imagine. The problem is that inducing this state is nearly impossible, and once it is achieved, it's even more difficult to maintain for more than one night. There were safe ways to do it, I knew that. Ways like developing a habit while you were awake that would trigger a different reaction in the dream. For example, trying to press your finger through your other hand to no avail so often that when you attempt it in a dream, it actually works. 
These ways are numerous and proven to cause no mental trauma whatsoever, but I didn't have the time. As a professional, I knew ways of getting the kind of treatment that I needed more quickly than is advised. You know the kind of thing. A rundown shop somewhere that's actually a place where people go to try out expedited ways of fixing whatever their problem happens to be. Chronic migraines, insomnia, recurring nightmares about a strange man running at them and murdering them in strange ways. I found a place operating under the designation Bob's Formal Wear on 6th Avenue between 37th and 38th. Avenue of the Americas. The place was exactly what I needed. They had a device that hadn't yet gone through preliminary tests that boasted a surefire path towards a lucid dream state in the first three nights. All you had to do was strap it on, put it over your face, turn on the power, and wait. It functioned with a system of irregular blinking lights that were too dim to keep you up all night but bright enough to seep through the illusory layer of vision that colored your dream experience. Once you began to become aware of this phenomenon during your dreams, you were off to the races. I made the transaction, the cost of which was exorbitant, but what do I care, brought home the device in a large brown paper bag, opened it up, strapped it on, flipped the switch, and waited for the magic to happen. As soon as the dream started, I could experience everything like it had always been. The endless concrete, the perfect blue sky, the speck in the distance slowly inching closer, and the blinding sun which was not alone. There was another light in the sky far above me, next to the sun, except it wasn't a star or a sun or a comet at all. It was... A strobe light of some kind. A strobe light blinking in the sky. It wasn't quite blinding, and so I felt it was fine to glance at it. It was white, then red, then green. It stopped blinking for a moment, and then suddenly the pattern randomized. Green, red, white. White, white, green, red. Red, white, green, green, white, green, red and so forth. I remember being here before, I thought. I remember everything. Soon, the speck in the distance will be a matter of inches away from me, and I'll have to defend myself. But there was something else. Something different. It was moving on its own immediately. It wasn't waiting for me this time. This time, it was full speed ahead from the moment I started dreaming. But thankfully, that wasn't the only difference. I could move too. After realizing that if I waited here, it would just be the same ending once again, I decided to turn and run. I ran the opposite direction of the one-eyed man, ran for what seemed like an eternity. With nothing but blinking lights and an endless horizon in front of me, I had little hope that anything else would reveal itself. While I ran, I occasionally looked behind myself, noticing that with every glance the one-eyed man was closer to me. It seemed that no matter how fast I ran, he was faster. 
I picked up speed again and again, always keeping in mind that I could be grabbed at any moment. But then I saw something. Something tall and square. Something in the sky. It was getting larger as I approached, and I was still a ways from reaching it. But there it was, all right. I looked ahead, squinting to make out every detail. I looked behind, the one-eyed man a matter of feet away. I turned back to the shape in front of me and discovered that it was a billboard. Immediately, before I felt a hand on my shoulder, I could read the words, The choice is yours to make, printed on the front. Then, darkness. You have to choose. I woke up, relieved to have finally found something worth investigating. It wasn't much, but at least it was a diversion from the regular order of things. My relief did not last long, however. My eyes now adjusted to the darkness of my room. I looked to my right, and there he was, towering over me. His rotten grin stretched to the sides of his face, his chin on his chest, wide-eyed and staring down at me. His right arm lifted, a white glove holding a blood-stained knife. I closed my eyes and screamed at the top of my lungs. I was screaming for about ten seconds when I finally stopped, opening them again. He was gone. Just a second ago, I was certain he was there, but now just gone, disappeared without a trace. Enough was enough. I had to find him, wherever he was. I had to get him out of my head. I mean, can you blame me for what happened? What would you have done? What would you have done? I searched every district around me for a billboard that resembled the one in my dream, and hopefully it could lead me somewhere other than the confines of my mind and now my own room. After an endless journey down maps and maps of satellite images, corporate logos, and slogans, I finally reached an image of a billboard featuring the New York State of Health with the subtitle, New York's Number One Marketplace for Health Plans. The choice is yours to make. That's it, I thought. The answer is getting closer. I couldn't believe it took me so long to notice a billboard that I had seen on countless occasions. I knew exactly where it was, too. In the morning, after a much-needed sleepless night, I dressed and traveled there. It was past the last stop of the one train in Van Cortland Park. I located it, walked over, and waited. I waited for hours. I became hungry and tired, my feet beginning to ache from standing around all day. But I knew that I couldn't move from that spot. I wouldn't move for anything. Finally, at half past seven o'clock, I saw what seemed to be a businessman in a gray suit walking into the subway station. He was wearing a white collared shirt and a black tie, a white pocket square tucked into his left front suit pocket. Hey! I shouted. He swung around, and I noticed he was wearing sunglasses. Sunglasses. At 7.30. 
He seemed to notice me, so I shouted, You! Stop right there! He seemed caught off guard, turned and started walking more briskly, so I ran after him. I made my way to the stairs leading up into the station, and at the end of the way I could see him walking further to catch the incoming train. He was making his way to the end of the platform that overlooked the park when the train came. I started running faster to catch him, the train's doors finally opening to let him in. I picked up speed, finally catching the door as it began to close, stopping it with my foot. He was right in front of me. He looked straight at me and said, Hey, pal, you gotta get out of here right now. The other passengers were looking at me. Stand clear of the closing doors, a voice shouted over the intercom, bellowing through the train car. I finally found you, you son of a bitch, I said. You're crazy! Get away from me! The man replied, feigning a look of shock through his opaque sunglasses. The intercom bellowed again. In or out? I know you've been following me, I said. I know you've been doing experiments on me. You've been spying on me. You've been doing something to me, I don't know what, but I found you. Get off of me, the man cried. In or out, mister, you have to choose, in or out. I grabbed him. It was my moment, I knew it was. Yanking him out of the train car, his strength seemingly miles away from where it was in the dream, he kept whimpering. The train took off. It was just the two of us. I grabbed his sunglasses off of his pitiful, ugly face. He had no glass eye. In fact, both of his eyes were blue, not hazel. His teeth weren't black. His breath did not reek of rotten garbage. Where is he? I screamed. What are you talking about, you psychopath? Psychopath? I don't think so. You know what I'm talking about, and if you don't tell me, I'm throwing you off of this platform. Y you wouldn't. Oh, yes, I... Help! The man screamed. Help! 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 There was a struggle. I tried to shut him up. He tried getting out of my grasp. In his final effort to loose himself... He pushed away from me, falling into the path of the next train. I ran for it. I ran as far as I could, not knowing where I was going. Everywhere I looked, there were men with glass eyes and gray suits, looking on as I ran further into unconsciousness. I ran, and I kept running, until there was nothing but concrete and sky. The next thing I remember is being questioned by the police. I told them everything. The dreams, the cases I presided over, the girl in the bathtub. Everything. I told them that they have to find him. They have to find him at any cost. They have to find him before anyone else needlessly loses their life. It must come to an end and they can't stop until he's found and put to justice. I told them to speak to the other subjects that I had treated myself. I told them to speak to my superiors. 
I told them to speak to my old classmates. I gave them their names and addresses. They told me they didn't exist. I was shocked. At first, my reaction was to question their sanity, but then I realized they're all in on it, every last one of them. They told me that I'm not the next Freud, the next Jung, or the next Adler at all. They told me I wasn't even a clinical psychologist. They told me that my name was John Dudley, an unemployed man, 49 years of age, with no connections and no prospects of any kind. Now, I understand that most people would have reacted with pure rage to these lies, but I knew better. I knew that whatever they were planning was going to continue with or without me, and I'd better not risk my life for nothing. In the jailhouse, I saw him again. He was wearing an officer's uniform, but that slick black hair was unmistakable. In prison, I stabbed two other inmates, one with a glass eye, the other with rotten teeth. He has a network of these little helpers everywhere. I currently reside in a small room, constrained to a chair, with nothing but a crayon and a roll of toilet paper, which is almost completely filled with my writing. Whoever finds this, you must keep looking for him. He's out there, somewhere. He will keep hunting people down and killing them without remorse until he is stopped. And don't worry about me. These surroundings are quite nice, actually. The walls depict a clear and cloudless sky, the ground a clean and infinite gray. On the ceiling, there's a bright and shining sun. I daren't look up at it. If I do, I'll go blind. You've been listening to You Have to Choose by Daniel Dickinson. Daniel Dickinson is a new author, and You Have to Choose is his first short story. His other projects are mostly of a musical nature, including numerous jazz and pop projects such as A Gathering Foretold and Kin, which can be found on his website at dandickinsonmusic.com. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart, but we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts gummies, fruity splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. 
we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now, to close out our evening, I present to you Under a Blanket of Stars by George Woodruff. Aspens full of fresh green leaves rustled under the wind passing through trees. Brennan listened, eyes closed, and slowly let his imagination take over, replacing the known sound of the leaves with the perceived similarity of ocean waves lapping over one another in calm infinity. He took a deep lungful of mountain air, slowly in through the nose for three, out through the mouth for eight. After hearing this mantra repeated back to him and the others in his dissolving anger daily group for the last three months, it had finally started to settle into being a natural thing, not just for anger, but also to regularly find the center he only realized recently had gradually shifted far off course. Thinking briefly about group, going to meet with the other dads, he told his little ones with a kiss on the cheek each as he grabbed his coat and sprinted out the door. He met his wife in the driveway as she pulled in. She was late, again, tired from working unpaid extra hours, but nevertheless happy to see her husband keeping cool and sticking to their agreement. He makes regular meetings while she makes dinner, and things would hopefully get back to the way they were before the days of people talking less to avoid the ire that would appear at the slightest provocation. Three months ago, he would not have imagined being in such a different place. Happier. A better dad. A better husband. A better man. The sleeping bag off to his right rustled, bringing Brennan out of his brief meditation. He opened his eyes to stare up at the perfect pinpoints of light, flickering here and there, sitting in a sea of total blackness. He looked over to see Fred, one of the other three dads, in tow with him, his face resembling a withered jack-o'-lantern. Yeah, or maybe a janitor with an affinity for striped sweaters and kids, Brennan thought, watching as Fred lit a cigarette, briefly illuminating a deeply scarred face. Can't sleep? Brennan inquired. Hmm. <sighs> Fred replied, his face glowing slightly as he inhaled, the end of his cigarette blazing brighter. Brennan smiled openly, knowing he couldn't be seen. He silently counted as he watched Fred smoke his cigarette, three for the inhale with his mouth, eight for the exhale through his nose. <laughs> Even the most dense clay can eventually be shaped, I guess, he thought. 
The other two sleeping bags nearby remained still as Brennan and Fred stayed awake for the better part of an hour, not saying another word. Miles from the highway that brought them there, Brennan listened, trying to push his perception out, imagining the specific placement of each sound he heard. A branch crack, maybe 50 yards out. Scraping of bark as some smaller mammal scrambled up a tree, possibly to avoid the cause of the larger branch breaking a moment before. The constant swirling sound of the leaves started to make his eyes feel heavy, his thoughts drifting from his family, anger management, work, now focusing on a soft, haunting note carrying in and out. His head snapped to the side to eye Fred looking right back at him over the top of an empty orange soda bottle, lips pursed, eyes alight with mischief. Fred gave a shit-eating grin, full of teeth akin to piano keys for all the tobacco lodged between them, staring on, blowing again over the top of the bottle. Daydreaming again, sweetheart? Get fucked, Fred. Knock it off before you wake everybody up. It must be one in the morning. Standing up, Brennan pulled on his boots, leaving the laces undone, and started the short walk to the tree. He made the first fifteen or twenty paces nearly soundlessly, walking over well-trodden dirt in their small encampment. He walked carefully, intent on looking out into this nearly perfect night a bit longer after finding a good place to relieve himself. Glancing around, he stopped, perplexed to have somehow missed the tree some thirty feet to his right. Huh, he said. Maybe my sense of direction really is dependent on my damn phone. Smiling, thinking of his wife and the glee she would get from him admitting that, he resumed walking. Brennan scanned around to regain his bearings. Spotting what he was looking for, he walked over to a different tree. He had used, under the mockery of Fred, one of his wife's tricks— a pantyhose legging with a bar of soap dropped inside tied to a branch, a three-gallon jug of water affixed with a bungee cord to the same limb. Hands washed, he pushed the nozzle of the water jug back to the closed position as Fred blew another note off the top of his bottle, barely audible and carried off in the wind. Even though the hollow tone was quiet, Brennan shook his head and thought of the commotion that was sure to ensue if Fred continued. He resumed his walk, smaller twigs crunching underfoot as he passed beneath the massive trees back toward the cliff face again. Occasionally, his boots would sink inches down, fully muffled by piles of rotting pine needles. The feeling tickled him between the shoulder blades, and he consciously started avoiding the trees so as not to repeat the sensation. It had taken hours to get here. Once they had veered off US-285 southbound, the paved side roads gradually became less maintained, trickling down from smooth, one-lane, two-way blacktop with a painted shoulder to cobbled asphalt, barely wide enough for one car to move aside and let another pass. Finally, the pavement ran out unceremoniously, fading into faint paired grooves of off-road tire tracks marking the way. There were frequent switchbacks overlooking an increasingly precarious drop down the mountainside, and they had to maintain a careful pace in the overcrowded jeep. Once they left the roads altogether, the final hour was made on foot, the jeep parked near a large boulder that easily dwarfed it by double, a landmark they felt would be easy enough to find. 
Taking out a small paper map he had picked up in the gas station just past Red Sparrow Trail, Brennan marked his best approximation of their starting point. It was a long hike, especially for a group of guys in their 40s whose primary exercise consisted of chasing their progeny around the house. Reaching the top was a near-holy experience. Some of them had been seeing colors that didn't quite belong, nearly blacking out from the struggle to breathe and not roll back down the hill they had just climbed. At its top, Torin Butte nearly flattened out to a clearing the size of a football field. Ideal for camping, it held scattered trees that must have been hundreds of years old to reach their impressive height. The trees were just dense enough to diffuse the wind, but still allowed a view of the mountains expanding to the horizon. Bullet casings of various calibers littered the dirt nearest the edge, remnants of the last batch of good old boys that came up here to squeeze off a few rounds together. Half-incinerated cans of economy beer stuck up through the remaining ashes of a dugout fire pit, along with various detritus of half-melted trash they couldn't be bothered to haul out. The law, or Lawrence, as his driver's license said, found and shattered Fred's stashed bottle of bottom-shelf liquor stowed in one of the tent bags. Fred had left the others to set up after playing up the feeling-faint part a bit longer than the others seemed to feel. The law had run dads for years now, and ironically was the only one among them that was not actually a father, but he took a deep interest in getting the members of his group back on the right footing to be proper paternal figures. Easily the angriest looking of all of them, Lawrence looked more likely to be a criminal than a counselor, weighing in around 250 and standing at least 6'2", even with his exaggerated hunch. A coat of reddish stubble on his head and face accentuated the look of fury, but all the dads agreed, a kinder man was rarely seen. Well, most of the dads. The law had gotten his nickname, a moniker that only a fool would use in his presence, from his absolute adherence to the rules, a printout of which had been taped to the wall just inside the door of the office he rented for group. Written on standard lined paper in pencil read the following. Welcome. Grab a snack and a soda. If you have allergies, feel free to bring your own, so long as they do not contain fish, vinegar, or come in crunchy bags. Please be sure to observe the following rules. They will not be restated in group. 1. Be kind. Criticism of others is not welcome here. 2. Come sober. Members are encouraged to remain so for obvious reasons, but do not attend meetings without a clear mind. 3. Pick up your mess, take a napkin, and have a seat. Brennan chuckled, thinking of some of the unfortunates who hadn't bothered to read the sign. They found themselves bounced within minutes, and when you were out, you were out for good. Larry had a huge heart, but also had zero tolerance for bullshit when the goal was to rehabilitate men to being non-violent family members. When the stakes are beaten kids and murdered wives, Larry had informed them he was unlikely to miss the opportunity to fix what the legal system allowed to leak out. Coming back to the present and watching the blinking light of a plane thousands of feet above, Brennan realized how unnatural it felt to see a reminder of civilization so far from home. He traced the path of the blinking light as it slowly moved across the sky overhead, 
and he watched for the next artificial firefly pulse, predicting when and where it would appear. Yet... Huh? He furrowed his brow, certain that he should have seen it already. Maybe he just zoned out or lost count. Two, three, now... He pointed a finger at the sky as he counted, moving his arm to trace the anticipated trajectory. The sky looked back, unblinking. The only lights left were those that had been looking back down since long before even the first flight was a sketch on paper. Trees rustled slowly under the same patient breeze, a breeze that he had enjoyed all night, until now. Now, he felt childish frustration bubbling up at the wind. Noisy, distracting him from what he was searching for. But, like the law always said, anger is a secondary emotion. It's usually something more primal, like fear, that the anger steps in to try and cover up. He turned his gaze slowly, shifting focus by inches to see where the thing had snuck off to, maybe changing course. Suddenly aware he had been holding his breath, disproportionately anxious at this unexpected shift. He exhaled and, just on cue, the blinking reappeared. That's impossible, he said. Looking now, the beacon lights had emerged far off to the right, just a hair over where the group had made camp and much farther than his estimate ever would have allowed for. Scratching his head, he chalked it up to the lights being temporarily blocked by some of the taller trees. He resumed his walk, rubbing goose-bumped arms absent-mindedly and looking forward to getting back home to his family tomorrow morning. As he tiptoed back toward camp, Brennan collided into another tree that he must have missed during his mental mapping of the grounds. It caught him on the better part of his left side with enough force to spin him and almost knock him down into the cooler on the ground. He caught himself with his arms splayed outwards, dirt scattering as his boots slid to a stop, and he would swear that the sound that had escaped him hadn't sounded like a girlish scream. He remained that way, ready for flight, as he waited and listened to see if he had managed to wake the rest of the woods with his careless blunder. After a few moments of watching the sleeping bags, seeing no abnormal movement, he finished the last few feet to climb into his own cocoon. He made a mental note of the empty orange soda bottle left on the ground, reminding himself to grab it when breaking camp. Lazy ass, he thought to himself, but then reconsidered. At least Fred had slugged down his drink and gone back to sleep instead of staying up and seeing his less-than-graceful return to camp. His mind kept replaying the loop of the flashing light disappearing and reappearing. It actually made him a bit uneasy at the idea of falling back asleep, and he was now hyper-aware of every sound, every shadow shifting. But thoughts of flashing light slowly gave way to the more pleasant sky above him. Holes to heaven, he thought and smiled. He remembered his youngest looking back at him, giving her best attention, listening for his thoughts on her description of the sky on a particularly clear night back home. When he thought about it now, he realized it was one of his fondest memories. He could feel the braids in her hair as he rested his hand there, smell the sulfur lingering in the air from the modest fireworks display they had put on with the neighbors at their annual potluck barbecue. As his mind wandered, his eyes grew heavy, 
and the sound of the light patter that had started at camp brought him the rest of the way down. Unconcerned with the mild dampness as the first raindrops elicited angry puffs from the dying embers below the ashes of their fire. His dreamless, calm sleep was violently interrupted by screaming. The sound was octaves above what Brennan would have imagined possible from any of his companions, and yet there was the law. A red-headed behemoth standing barefoot on his sleeping bag in nothing but his boxers, shrieking himself hoarse. Dwarfed for the first time in his life, the law's breath was reduced to a thin rasp as the scream tore out of his lungs, deafening and harrowing, and yet somehow doing nothing to draw the attention of the thing towering over their encampment. First to catch Brennan's eye was their bright red igloo cooler, swinging side to side like a grandfather clock's pendulum. It dangled from the tree that Brennan had hung it in, the tree that hours ago had most certainly been in a different place than it was now. In spite of the nightmare in front of him, Brennan's mind returned to his walk back to camp, slamming into the tree and nearly falling ass over tea kettle on the cooler, and his blood went cold. At the time, it hadn't registered that they had hoisted their food up into the tree before settling in, which meant that this thing looming over their camp had been crouched, as it was far too tall to reach down from its full, terrible height. He had been standing right next to it. To call the horror before him a spider would be to call a megalodon a fish. The space between his group and the thing's thorax was twenty if not thirty feet. It stood, unflinching to any of the rapid movement below it. Brennan stood up, moving as slowly and silently as he could, eyes locked on the creature. The thing's legs, developed from God's knew how many millennia of evolution, perfectly resembled the stout trunks of trees. At each joint there were pseudo-limbs, and as Brennan stared at these, he realized that they were just more of the odd hair that nearly covered the monster. The hair seemed to vary in density. The parts made to look like bark were akin to fuzz or the hair of a man's head whereas the thin twigs and branches were intertwined like fingers, thick as sturdy rope. Absent-mindedly, his hand went to the side of his face. There was fuzz there, fuzz that had brushed onto him when he blundered into the thing earlier. He pulled his hand away to look at it, and then realized that there was more of the stuff in rough clumps on his sweatshirt, his hand now falling back limply to his side. The remarkable part, he noted, was that the ruse was so complete that the multiple legs had even developed to look like different trees, so given the sheer space between them, this arachnid abomination would likely fit into nearly any wooded environment, just eight extra trees that most people would walk right through without a thought. His eyes moved to its underside, a perfect canopy of hairs that seemed to flow with the breeze blowing over the mountaintop, yet some appeared to be moving of their own volition. It made Brennan think of the soothing ocean-esque noises he heard last night, and wonder if it actually had been the leaves, or this titan before him, looming overhead with no clear intent. 
The eyes were what nearly broke his mind. Taking in the magnificence of the existence of a thing that should not be possible might be enough to crack even the strongest psyches, but Brennan had lived through and seen much, and broken and repaired his own more than most. All the experience in this world, however, could never ready a man to gaze into others so immediately. The eyes, he now realized, had been the stars he gazed upon last night. The plane just disappeared, he thought. The eyes were convex and black, reflective domes one moment, then a shift in perspective showed they were empty, hollow, and yet endless. It didn't disappear, it flew behind a cloud I couldn't see. They shifted in and out, from black and glossy, one moment so reflective that they were nearly blinding, the next so empty that they appeared to draw in all of the light falling on them. Sinking deeper, Brennan saw space itself, cosmos in perpetual movement, big bangs that wouldn't occur until his bones were atoms spread over the near entirety of Earth, becoming pieces of the fish in the ocean the air his descendants would breathe, maybe even the future generations of this thing's race. A cloud, my foot! It flew behind a spider the size of a roller rink, and nobody in the air would have seen a thing but a clump of trees below them, and some idiot standing at the edge of a cliff staring back up at them. He was now moving faster than a body can travel, but the mind... Oh, the mind can do interesting things, and with the aid of a mind so alien, to attempt to communicate with it, Brennan realized would likely have ended with blood running from his ears, nose, eyes, and ass. So he rode, content to be given this boon, this glimpse, and for what? So what if his hair had nearly turned gray in the span of a minute as he shared this mental voyage with a thing that would very likely eat them in the next few moments? He giggled without realizing it, and the law, jaw leaden and hanging to its limit, looked at his friend staring at this creature and giggling. Maybe more than just the hair, then. As gently as possible, the thing pushed... Brennan back, swirling colors of pinks and purples, ethereal mist and abrasive debris rushing past him at a slightly reduced speed now in reverse. The Guardian rarely granted glimpses to the denizens of this world, their minds as delicate as the orange soda bottle left in the dirt below it. But this one seemed different, needful and possibly open to the things that normally only children can accept hearing and seeing. A blood-tinged tear slowly ran down Brennan's face, and his last conscious thought was, Thank you, before he crumpled to the ground, breathing slow, shallow breaths. Greg was now up as well, and he and Lawrence moved to their friend, pausing instantly as the trees, eight of them to be precise, lifted off the ground in slow succession and moved forward in a sickly pattern, more a slither than a walk. The wriggling, living roots at the base of the trees were suddenly too much for Greg, 
and he joined Brennan on the ground, putting his head between his knees, praying this would end, one way or the other, very soon. The law watched on and would tell his friends at their next group meeting, which was not to be for another two weeks before they were up to speaking to anyone, that he had seen the gargantuan thing move as gracefully and silently as if it were one of the terrestrial insects no doubt living in your very home. As it stepped away from their encampment, the cooler crashed to the ground, the rope unbroken and still tied in a neat loop. Movement overhead caught Lawrence's attention, where, dangling from spinnerets the size of motorcycles, was a cord of webbing some nine feet long, ending in a bundle bobbing and slapping against the creature's body and legs. Fred cocooned from feet to knees, looking like a deranged bungee jumper, his face set in rigor as though he were clenching his teeth on a cigarette. Or having his toesies nibbled by Iggy Biggy Spider, he might have teased somebody else in the same horrible position. The fist-sized hole at the top of his skull occasionally allowed some vital fluid or tissue to fall and slop to the ground, and Lawrence could see where a much larger entry point on his belly had likely been where he had been spit, lifted, then entangled. Despite the gore he now noted everywhere, it was hard not to appreciate, given its size, how delicate it must have been for this thing to not have completely pulped the man in the process. The law would never admit such a dark thing, but the sight of one monster meeting his end by a much bigger one brought a smile to his face that he felt no regret for. It just wasn't the type of vibe he hoped to instill in group. He watched the monster cover thousands of feet in a matter of moments, and saw that his friends had in fact not seen its camouflage at its true peak. That had happened when it was far enough to only appear to be house-sized, at which point, he couldn't say precisely how, it was as though a thin blanket had been draped over it, the sky behind it fading into view in tandem with the outline of the thing fading away. Or like it phased out of this reality, he thought in his head, but refused to say out loud. The journey to the truck went much faster than the ascent to the camp. Going downhill always helps things along, and so does leaving everything but the car keys and compass behind. There was a momentary mention of collecting the sleeping bags that had been polka-dotted in the middle of the night, driblets of precipitation that, in the dark, had been so comforting to one of them, but that thought was quickly cast aside as Greg commented on letting nature handle it. The other two looked almost stung by this comment. Then they realized that he had meant the nature they knew, wind sure to carry the bags through trees that stayed put, easily shredding nylon and holding the pieces for the sun to bleach and reduce to so many scraps. They rode with the radio turned off none speaking a word the whole way home. Mary ran her hands through Brennan's hair, smiling slightly and watching him sleep. She looked overhead, taking in what her husband had accomplished in the last two weeks. I never even knew he could paint, she thought. 
At first, his moving everything out of the spare room to the garage without a discussion seemed like the type of thorough cleaning one sometimes does to work through frustration or deep thoughts. Brennan had come home from the camping trip with the dad's group and seemed happier than ever to be home, but also quieter than she and the girls were accustomed to. At first, the sound of him singing in the house again made her happy to hear, at least up to the point that she walked into the still empty spare room. It was then that she realized that it was nearly done being repainted a pure jet black. Ceiling, walls, the wood floor, and even the small window facing the alley between them and the neighbors she would sometimes peek through if she heard yelling next door. Initially, Mary was pissed. She reminded him that they would have a hard time ever selling the house, whenever that ended up being, with a spare black hole room, and she seethed at his inability to explain what he was thinking and doing this out of the blue. But she softened when all he could finally come up with was, It's just something I need to do. I'm sorry. Brennan was never at a loss for words and his being truly unable to describe something had never happened so far as she could remember knowing her husband. It didn't take long for amazing sponged white dots and meticulously splattered neon-colored paints to begin showing up, transforming the room into something she realized was very special. He still handled all of his family commitments, still worked as hard as he had promised when he said he would make things right again. But with every spare moment... Brennan strained his mind to recall the fathomless expanse of cosmic majesty that he had just barely glimpsed, not wanting to forget anything, knowing he could never fully reproduce what he had seen. This was like a map for his already clouding memories to find their way back. On the last night that he worked on the room, after putting the girls to bed and cleaning up his mess, he laid on the floor and took in his work. After a time, he fell asleep on the floor, staring up at swirling galaxies of electric pinks, phosphorescent white nebula, and distant constellations that wouldn't be named before the sun burned itself out. Mary came up to join him and found him that way. Not wanting to disturb him, she grabbed a blanket off the couch, covered them both, and slept beside her husband under a blanket of stars. You've just heard Under a Blanket of Stars by George Woodruff. George Woodruff is a fledgling author and recovering band geek. When he's not writing about the terrors inhabiting unexplored areas of the Rocky Mountains, he runs a small audio service business, Full Throttle Sound. George can also be found narrating Reading Corner and, occasionally, Weird. His passion project podcast shows that include read-along text to encourage literacy and kindle grade school readers' interest in horror, folk, and weird fiction. He lives with his wife, daughter, and canine familiar. And with that, dear listeners, we conclude tonight's episode of Horror Hill. I hope that your evening tonight is less eventful than those of our two protagonists. After all... You have to survive to come back next week, don't you? Speaking of which, we're going to do something a little different next week, 
marrying a story from the past with a similar tale that's much more modern. Of course, now that the hook is sufficiently baited, I can't tell you more until next week. I hope to see you there, and until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's Dark Tales, Paul J. McSorley's Fear from the Heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. You.